the uh, private chat and I'll, I'll retweet it as well. All right. Well, we're live, so. All right. <laughs> we'll get to we'll, It's I'll, on. I'll see if I can. It's on here. All uh, right. Let me, get... let me send you this tweet. Hey, everybody <laughs> who's tuned in. Now. Uh, yeah, so we're live. Um, my name is Sebastian Couture, and I am the host of The Interop, which is all about understanding and exploring the decentralized economic networks that make up the interchain. Uh, today, I'm here with Alex Bruton, who is the CEO of Alio. I've been told it's pronounced Alio, like Paleo. So hopefully I get that right throughout the show. Uh, they're a blockchain that are bringing zero knowledge to smart contracts. Uh, we met uh, two weeks ago in Korea, and uh, you were giving a talk there at Biddle Asia and had a chat in the, in the speaker's room. And you know, it was really interested in what you guys are doing. So I uh, thought it'd be cool to have you on. Um, so hi, thanks for, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. This is, uh, is going to be a fun chat. Yeah. Uh, looking forward to it. Uh, so, you know, if, if you guys are watching and listening, uh, I, I, you know, I, I do want to like mention the brief hiatus on which we've been for the last, I guess, month or so. Uh, but, you know, the interop is back and we're going to be producing episodes every week. It's been a really crazy summer with like Nebula Summit, uh, which was at the end of July. And then after that, like traveling and some time off. So, um, the interop is back and we're going to keep it at a regular schedule, uh, hopefully doing episodes every Thursday around this time. So, yeah, you know, you've got an interesting background. So you were in the military before getting into crypto. Um, I heard someone tell me that you were a Navy SEAL. Is that right? <laughs> um, sure, we can go with that. Uh, no, so not technically, although I was, uh, I, I guess, at the end of my military career, I was uh, in special forces and the team that I was leading was a had a dive specialty. So this is probably more than anyone cares to know about U.S. military special operations. But in the Army, there is a subset of people who do focus on maritime and dive operations like the SEALs. Um, it's a little redundant. But anyway, so that's uh, I guess maybe you could say I was I was doing something similar. But yeah, I guess my full career. So I I am um, my full kind of story before crypto. Uh, I was in high school at in when 9-11 happened. My parents or actually my my uh, yeah, both my dad and, and several generations of my family had served in the military. And of course, 9-11 was a pretty big moment in the U.S. And so I decided to, to join the military as well. I went to um, the U.S. Military Academy, commissioned in 2008 as an infantry officer, which is just basically like a basic rifle rifleman, effectively. Um, and I did that for five years, did a deployment to Afghanistan. And then I went spent my last four years in U.S. Army Special Forces, which is colloquially the Green Berets. Anyway, so the the key piece of that story is, I guess, relevant to this audience in this podcast is how did I get into crypto? And I got into crypto uh, in during my last, or I was first exposed to crypto during my last deployment uh, as a special forces officer. I was working in Turkey. And at the time we were, we were working on a program where we were training Syrian rebels and uh, learned about Bitcoin from a Turkish person. I uh, had never heard of it before. And I have not, I do not have a technical background, by the way. I, I studied Arabic and international relations in my undergrad and I was in the army. So I, I, and I did nothing technical in the army. But anyway, I learned about this concept of Bitcoin from a Turk. And uh, because of the people that we were working with, mostly, you know, refugees, Syrian refugees who had fled from the Assad regime, uh, that, you know, many of those people had lost everything in terms of their wealth overnight and went from being relatively well off and in a professional class, say in like Aleppo or Hama or somewhere in Syria to living hand to mouth in a refugee camp. And I was, I, I didn't know anything about finance at the time. And I guess my first 
ignorant thought was like, well, why don't you just pull your money out of the bank account and like, you know, buy a house, whatever. Right. And you, of course, and, and, you know, everyone's probably laughing because as you know, like the financial system is really built around the U S dollar. It's easy to pull money out if you're an American in Europe somewhere, but it's, if you're a Syrian and your wealth is in Syrian pounds, uh, then it's not really possible to pull out your money out of your bank account in Turkey or Lebanon. And it's even more hard or it's even harder rather if, you know, your wealth is tied up to some physical assets. So anyway, the idea of Bitcoin really caught, caught me in this idea where it's like, okay, well, if you were able to transfer your wealth into this digital form and you, you are the, you know, bearer of that asset, you can basically have the bank account in your head, walk across any border in the world and start over again. So yeah. that was, that was kind of the insight for me. And that's how I first got into crypto. That's interesting. So, uh, you know, a lot, I think a lot of folks in the crypto space, you know, when thinking about places in the world where there are financial controls uh, or, or, people don't have like the same sorts of financial freedoms as we have in the West, they immediately go to South America, places like Argentina and Venezuela and like these places, right? Like, it, 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 you know, the, the, the sort of crypto use there has been widely documented. And, like people like Camilla Russo has written books that like chronicle this stuff. And like, I, I, I've never really encountered or I haven't heard much uh, talk about, you know, using crypto in the Middle East and, you know, in sort of war-torn countries like Syria and, and places like that. In fact, a lot of times, I think when we hear about crypto in those places, it's you know from the mouthpiece of like regulatory folks or you know politicians that are talking about how like Bitcoin is using being used by by you know terrorism by terrorists and like Daesh or whatever. Um, did, did you get a sense that it was very broadly used by the? the kind of working class that had then, you know, lost, you know, their, uh, their livelihoods and, or was it sort of like a very niche thing? I think we lost Alex. Um, oh, there you go. All right. We back. I don't know if that was yes. you or me, but whatever. I, I don't know, but we're back. That's all that matters. <laughs> we're back. All right. <laughs> but I got your question. Uh, I guess it was asking about, you know, the, the the narrative around use cases in the Middle East is often tied to, you know, okay, terrorist financing, et cetera. And I think this is most relevant recently with, you know, kind of the OFAC pronouncement of sanctioning tornado cash, which we can get into We're later. Talk about that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah. look, I, you know, I have a, I have a pretty strong and unique view on this. Cause I, you know, two of my deployments, including the one where I was training the Syrian rebels, I mean, we've focused on fighting dash and uh, it, you know, and, and was very aware of how they were raising money. And the reality is they were raising money through the traditional banking system by and large. Mm -hmm. And that's how they were financing themselves and selling oil on the gray market, not even on the black market. Um, so I think, look, like any technology, um, crypto can be used for good and bad, right? And it's it's just a tool, right? And it depends. I, I think we need to separate. My, my high-level TLDR on the matter is like we need to separate the tool from the people using the tool. I think people can use, you know, there's all, depending on the legal system, there's like a way to use a given tool that's legal or illegal. And I think that we need to separate that from the tool itself. Now, I, I clearly have a view about political principles that are important. I mean, I, I spent nine years of my life fighting to defend the US Constitution. So like, those are things that matter to me. And this, per, this principle of liberty is something that I do think is very important for humanity, like individual liberty. And that's one of the things that I think is special about crypto is that it encodes in many ways, 
uh, your liberty in the digital world, right? And it's it's a means to to reclaim that, which I think the direction that the internet had been going for the last 20 years was in the opposite direction. Like it's harder and harder to control of, to, to take or maintain control over the things that you would care about, namely your information and data about you. So I guess what we can put, a, we can maybe come back to this conversation, but I think overall, you know, the story about that Cami writes about with South America, I mean, look, it's, it's, it's a universal human story, right? You as an individual in some place don't have control over the, state of the world around you, right? You're just one person. And when the, when the powers that be decide to change the rules suddenly, then you just have to adapt with that. And when those rules have to do with finances, like if the central bank decides to inflate the currency and there's runaway inflation, like, you know, you're just stuck. There's no control that you have. And that's like the narrative of Bitcoin for specifically early on was what I think a lot of people reacted positively to and, and, and what led them to it. In fact, it's funny if you talk, I, I talk to people in the U S all the time and who are less familiar with crypto and they, they kind of were like, okay, I don't really understand. I have a store of value. It's called my bank account dollars. But if you go, honestly, if you go anywhere outside of us and Western Europe, people immediately get it. They're like, even if they hadn't been exposed to crypto before. Um, and so, and I think it's true in Venezuela, it's true in Turkey, it's true in many places in Africa. So. Yeah, I think that there's definitely uh you know, we, we definitely have this um, this thing that we take for granted here, which is, you know, the ability to just like transact. And uh, like, you know, we were both in Korea last week and or two weeks ago. And, you know, like there, there was some friction there and using you know, your, your Western bank account or bank card in some places or like having to use Google Maps and things like that, which doesn't really work in Korea. And so... You know, to the extent that like the frustration that I felt like being there, having to you know, deal with these sort of like small um, inconveniences, a lot of people like just this is their daily life. And, you know, I think like a lot of folks, you know, who even people who work in crypto, like just don't realize the extent to which this is a real deal for like a lot of people around the globe. Um, but yeah, no, uh, you know, interesting to hear about your background and I think like how that shapes you know, your thinking around these things is probably like really, really valuable for you. So um, let's let's get into um, the LEO and, you know, like give us a high level overview of what you guys are building here. And, and maybe like maybe one one interesting aspect that I'd like to touch on here, like what is a fully private application like? I've seen that on your website. Like, what does that mean? And not only technically speaking, but also from a user perspective, and, you know, when actually using this stuff, what does it mean to be using a fully private application? Because it seems so contradictory to everything that we know and like we use on a daily basis. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I'm going to answer that. And as I, in my answer, I'm going to finish maybe like just giving people context on how I even got to Alio. So I started in, you know, I got into crypto and then how did I get to Alio? So the, and this is going to start to answer your question and then we'll go into a full answer of what is a fully private application. So yeah, I got out of the military. I went to Stanford. I was in the business school, but I was interested in computer science. So I spent time over there learning cryptography, et cetera. And uh, got, uh, I met uh, a professor of computer science of cryptography specifically who worked at A16Z, the crypto fund. Um, and he recommended me for a job, and I ended up working there for two years before I joined Alio. Now, in his in this class, so this is Professor Bonet, Dan Bonet, who's written some uh, relatively groundbreaking uh, work on digital signatures, specifically, and a lot of other things. 
But in his class, I learned about zero knowledge cryptography. And maybe it's worth pausing for a minute to inform all of your listeners what this is, because Alio fundamentally is built on this uh, cryptographic primitive known as zero knowledge cryptography. So zero knowledge cryptography is basically it's a, it's a cryptographic technique to prove something without revealing why it's true. The simple example that I like to give in this case is like Seb, you and me are playing poker. Uh, you claim to have a Royal flush. And of course, how do I verify that you have a Royal flush? You need to show your cards when the rounds of betting are over. And then we decide, okay, yes, you do have a Royal flush. And if that's better than my hand, you win the pot, right? So that's typically how we think about verifying information is we need to physically see the information to know that it's true or see the evidence that would convince us that what we were told is true. And zero knowledge cryptography is kind of magical because it breaks that paradigm. You no longer need to see your hand of cards to verify that what you're telling me is correct. Right. And it's like in poker, it's kind of a bit of a contrived example because you're like, okay, does it really matter? But there are many cases in the digital world today where this could be incredibly useful. You pointed out earlier that the way that the internet has kind of evolved is we're basically constantly emitting information about ourselves that is extremely personal, especially when aggregated. And that's the, the, we often view the downsides of that, like, okay, well, people can aggregate this information and maybe create advertisements or, or things that could manipulate me or nudge me one way or the other. And applied writ large, that could be bad. But it's also important to acknowledge that this has enabled a level of personalization for various products and services that was unheard of before the internet existed, right? And so I think there's there's good things, like we, we want to share certain aspects about ourselves so to get better, so as to get better service and products, right? And typically most people do, I think. And there's a spectrum, of course, depending on who, how, how much people want to share or not. But the nice thing about this tool is it's not, it no longer becomes all or nothing. I can prove to you a fact about myself. I can prove I visited a website. I can prove I know, you know, some password to log in without having to reveal the thing itself. So anyway, now I'm, let me, so this is zero knowledge cryptography in general is what I got really interested in at Stanford uh, as a, you know, as a student in this class and A16Z was looking at a lot of stuff and, and this company, which where is is Alio. So I, I discovered Alio. And at the time it was, it was, it had just started the four founders and I'm not a founder, by the way, I was the first non-founder to join, but it was the four founders, students out of Berkeley, uh, one of whom had written a paper called Zexi, which is short for zero knowledge execution. And the idea was basically to take this zero knowledge cryptography and layer on a smart contract system on top of it. So that's Alio. So now, okay, now getting to the question of what is a fully private application. So that's kind of like, I we're talking bottoms up. What is Alio? Now, top down, what is, the, what is the user experience? So the idea of a fully private application, like the privacy that Alio offers is really privacy by default. Because again, I think there's there, there are reasons why we would want to share certain information. There's reasons why we want to share certain information depending on the application. But there's also, I think, over, overwhelmingly for many applications, especially financial applications that people care about, they, they are going to want a degree of privacy. And the nice thing about Alio is you can decide as a developer and as a user, what information you want to share and what you want to conceal. And so in that sense, that's what we consider to be fully private. I mean, it's really, we should probably reword that because I think it's privacy tuned to exactly what you want. There is a world in Alio, and this is not true of every privacy focused blockchain, where you can reveal everything. Like that's, that's possible. The reason we make it by 
private by default is because on other chains, let's take Zcash, for example, where it's public by default, the tendency is for people to not hide anything. And so then it's very obvious <laughs> when one per it's like, you know, you go to a costume party and you're the only one wearing a costume or like, okay, wonder who this is. You know what I mean? So that's why we think it's important to have a private by default um, kind of mode, but, but to let people choose the degree to which they want to have privacy in their applications. I'll, I'll pause there. I, I hope that's helpful or answering your question. Yeah, totally. And I like one of the ways that it's described on, I think on the website, though, there's like this quadrant, right? And on the bottom left, you have Bitcoin. And on the bottom right, you have Ethereum. On the top left, you have Zcash. And, you know, Zcash is is the private Bitcoin. Ethereum is the sort of customizable Bitcoin. or programmable Bitcoin. But we don't have a thing that sits in the top right quadrant, which is programmable private applications. And this is where like Alio sort of, you know, comes at this, uh, you know, from, from this application paradigm, right? Um, exactly. What, like, l l l let's talk about some of the types of things that I think this is helpful. Like, what are the types of things that we can build um, using Alio and some of the, you know, early use cases or like applications that people are building on the platform. Yeah. So um, I'll cite things that, that we have teams working on currently through grants or partnerships. Uh, so I'll give you, I'll give four examples. So one is um, uh, decentralized exchanges in particular, a decentralized OTC desk, right? So for people who are not familiar with finance, you know, you have like big kind of, order book style exchanges like Coinbase and crypto or like, you know, NASDAQ, well, NASDAQ's an index, but like, you know, the New York Stock Exchange rather like, well, that's where like, you know, anybody can come and, you know, place a bid to buy or sell something. And there's just a central entity that manages an order book and fills orders as they come in. Right. The reason why that's, I mean, so it's popular obviously for, you know, many reasons, but those are the reason why that many big funds don't use that is if you're trading in large amounts, you number one, reveal some information about whether you're long or short an asset, which you may not want to reveal to the market. And two, you may cause the price to slip very far one direction or the other if that order that you're placing represents a large percentage of the total liquidity available for that pair. So this is why OTC desks exist is basically for large or counterparties that are holding large positions and want to sell or buy large positions, they can kind of independently get together. And that is facilitated, you know, by a, by a desk, quote unquote. And those, those trades all happen and exchange off the centralized exchange or off of the order book exchange. So no one actually knows that it happened. Therefore price is not affected and no information is revealed about what your intense, your intention is or your long or short something. So we had decentralized exchanges on Ethereum. I mean, Uniswap is like one of my favorite crypto applications of all time. It's great. It kind of like is this super cool decentralized version of an order book type exchange, but you don't really have the ability to do a OTC type swap on Ethereum, right? And like I said, one of the key things about this is you want to make sure you're not revealing who you are as a counterparty and not revealing the amount that you're trading, which is the opposite of how it is in Uniswap, right? In fact, this is kind of a problem, depending on who you ask, on a open transparent blockchain where a decentralized exchange where you're always vulnerable to front running. So you can imagine if you placed a gigantic order 
on Uniswap, there are bots that are watching that contract constantly in the mempool to see who is trading. And they're constantly trying to get in front of or behind uh, this order for their own profit at your detriment. And so something like a decentralized OTC desk is possible on Alio, where again, the counterparties can be private, the amounts you're trading can be private, and that can all be facilitated by, by a smart contract and potentially a sequencer, depending on how you want it or to, uh, to set that up. So that's one example. So, uh, so that works example. for, I mean, this works for an OTC trades and I, I can see how that works for OTC trades because you, 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 you have to coordinate this kind of coincidence of wants uh, where on one side you have like someone who's placing a bid and, and he has like placing like an order. And on the other side, you have like uh, you know, large orders and the amount, you know, the, the amount of orders to wants like or bids is it's reasonably like manageable, probably like more so than on a, on an order book decks or like on a, on a, or on an orbital exchange or on a DEX. Um, d does this work when we start getting into like order book style exchanges or just more yeah. traditional like DEXs? Um, can we do private uh, trading there as well? Yeah, absolutely. So I think there's the, I think it, it has, so it has to depend on what your definition of a DEX is, right? So something like Uniswap, one of the reasons why Uniswap works in the way that it works is that it's kind of all transparent, right? You, you, what is Uniswap, right? It's, it's two, it's like two pools and there's a line or there's a function that relates, you know, the, the, you know, the, the amount in, e, in either pool, right? And that's basically where you are on that line, depending on the ratio uh, in each pool is the price, right? That's your trading price. So that like, again, what I just it told you implies that you need to know like a certain thing about that construct. Like you need to know what's in each pool or someone does, right? To be able to give you that price. Um, so you can, again, like I said, with Alio, it's private by default, but we have the ability to make certain information public such that you could exactly recreate the Uniswap model, but even in, in some sense, a little more privately where you, you know, you're going to need to know the information about the state of each side of the pool and thus to be able to prevent, present a price to a potential buyer or seller. But the, the nice thing is you can deposit into the pool fully privately. So people don't necessarily have to know like what positions you hold or what percent of the pool, the liquidity that you're providing is, for example. So yes, you could, the short answer to your question is yes, you can absolutely replicate a Uniswap on Alio. You can also do something closer to zero X, which is almost like a more small scale version of the OTC model that I described earlier. So these are all models that are possible. And again, this is a new paradigm that people are, like we're just now releasing the ability for people to deploy programs in Alio. And it's just like Ethereum, you know, when people first got their hands on Ethereum, they didn't quite know it was possible. I mean, Uniswap was kind of only conceived a little bit later, although Bancor kind of did an AMM thing. Um, so I think I'm excited to see the other types of permutations of what an exchange could look like that people come up with. What, what are the, what kinds of things that, you know, like, so, okay, maybe, maybe a, a, a DEX in the way that we think about Uniswap would be difficult because you, you need to have that market transparency, that, that transparency in order to find the price. Like that, that's part of what uh, makes a DEX possible. What are some of the other things that, you know, we know as like DeFi primitives or as applications on blockchains that just don't work in, in the zero knowledge context? Um. Yeah, I wouldn't say I don't I don't know if I would use the term don't work. I just think it's you have to the thing with zero knowledge that you have to remember. And this is, by the way, this applies to every ZK EVM, anything that's using zero knowledge. This is a, the cryptographic technique. Again, what is zero knowledge? It's like I can prove to you that something is true without revealing why. 
key piece being without revealing, right? So if you need to know the thing that's, that that's being proved, you know, if there's some state, if like to be, to put it in concrete terms for a program, if there's some state that you need to operate on as a user that you, that you want to update, like, and it's, and you want everyone to be able to update that maybe concurrently in the course of a block, there needs to, that either needs to be transparent on chain or there needs to be a, a party that maintains that state generally, right? Now, there's another cryptographic primitive out there that is interesting and it still enables you to preserve privacy that this is not what Alio is focused on. But in the future, I think we could see Alio, Ethereum, and a lot of blockchains looking to use this, which is called multi-party computation, which is, or, and also fully homomorphic encryption. So let me define these two things. Multi-party computation is where everyone has a little bit of the, of the story and they like collectively can run a computation and no one sees everything. Uh, and then fully homomorphic encryption is you can send me some encrypted message and I can ask a question of this message that's arbitrary and get an answer without seeing the results. So these three things, I think in the, in 10 years from now will be combined. A lot of times people look at them as substitutes for one another, MPC and zero knowledge and FHE. But I think really the cool thing is these can all be combined to enable applications to be as private or as, as not private as you want. And again, to, to me, I think there's always going to be things that we as users, depending on the application category, are going to want to be public and want to be private. But yeah, I think the biggest thing is just remembering the nuance around concurrent access to the same state. That's That in general requires you to either have a sequencer or to make that public. Okay. Um, and so one of the things I, I learned while you know, researching this is that the, the, ex, the execution doesn't actually happen on chain. So the chain itself does the proof verification, but the execution of the application logic ha happens off chain. Can you describe how that works and like who's who's executing the the logic and as a you know as a counterparty user of an application, let's say like you and I are engaged in some sort of you know like some sort of transaction, um, how how do I know that the code that you're running uh, actually does what you know, you told me it's supposed to do? Um, yeah. Yeah, great question. Um, and yeah, so you're right. The model of computation that Alio performs, or the the paradigm, I guess, that Alio is in, is this world of off-chain execution, on-chain verification. By the way, this is this is a pretty much exactly how rollups work too, right? Where you have the sense of like, okay, there's some other network that's coming, you know, that's doing some computation, and there's a result is just posted to the Ethereum blockchain, for example, or Celestia or whatever. Um, and this is this is kind of the model that you should think about for Alio. And, and this, you know, I think people are probably already aware, but there's a lot of really nice things about this model. So one, it's much more scalable. Um, on Ethereum and most smart contract blockchains today, nodes have to recompute, rerun every transaction, every single at every block, right? So everybody's doing a ton of duplicate work. Um, with the model of Alio, you know, you submit you the user generate a transaction on your own. And then you post that transaction, which is in the form of a zero knowledge proof that then nodes only need to verify. So a node just simply needs to verify cryptographically that the proof is correct. And then they can include that transaction in a block, which is a trend, you know, it affects a state update. So that's much more efficient and therefore much more scalable than a model where everyone does all the work, right? It also saves a lot on space because instead of, all of the steps in the computation that you need to save, because if you ever want to resync a node from Genesis, you need to rerun through each one of those steps. 
you know, you only need to save this proof and this proof correctness. By the way, this is why other how other blockchains like Mina, they've they've kind of taken this construction to the next level where it's like you have proofs about blocks and then you recursively construct these proofs of blocks all the way back to the beginning such that you only have just a nice succinct proof that says, hey, this light client that you're running is absolutely the canonical one. And this is, you know, I think this is a plan for us to do in the future as well. But again, that's another application of zero knowledge proofs. In addition to concealing, uh, they can compress. Um, so that's so that's one big thing is the efficiency. And again, the other thing is, uh, and we talked about this earlier, but this is this really is, is enables you to conceal information that you don't want to share, right? Because if I want something executed publicly, aka I want the nodes on the network to execute it, you'd need to do a transaction in the model of Bitcoin or Ethereum today. You basically need to publish your instructions to the network. And then there's a lag period between when you publish those instructions and when they get executed. And then the interlude, anybody can do anything they want with that information, right? So it's like, again, the Uniswap front running example is the most obvious one. It's like, okay, you're doing a trade. I'm going to do a trade in front of you and maybe try and front run you, right? And, in gen and even if you don't get front run, those instructions still exist for all time. And so there's very, it's very hard to have privacy in that model. So the off-chain execution model ensures privacy in addition to efficiency. The other cool thing, last thing, and this is a little bit more nuanced, is it allows for programs with unlimited runtime. And so if you think about a program on Ethereum, like we have this concept of gas, right? To make sure that no one basically just dosses the chain. They don't like have a program that just goes into an infinite loop. That's why gas exists. Um, that obviously makes the computing model tractable, but it limits the types of things you can do. The most obvious thing is like, okay, you, you can't, you can't run any program that's longer than the Ethereum block time, right? And you're like, okay, well, why? What would I do that's longer than the Ethereum block time? I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of models to that you know to run, like AI models, for example, um, to run would take longer than 15 seconds, even on a very performant machine. So you like even basic AI algorithms, like a linear regression, would blow up in terms of gas on Ethereum. But the nice thing about something like Alio, where you have this off-chain execution model is you can run a program for days, for years. I mean, you could, I don't know why you'd ever do this, but you could do like the SETI thing, SETI at home or like folding proteins. And like 10 years from now, you can prove that you found something and it's still a valid transaction on chain that you, again, in the model of gas, you can never do that because it, you simply need to have each computation needs to be atomic per block. Okay. So, so things are executed off chain in, uh, essentially like a zero knowledge circuit and we'll get to you know what the tools that you've built around that in, in a few minutes but okay so l l let's let's go back to like my zero knowledge basics here um it, this is stuff I, I feel like i used to know a lot more about maybe because like i was using it in my work for you know like my previous company like we talked about zero knowledge a lot but i feel like i've kind of lost like the the mental model of how this works so let's say like you and I are, in, are engaged in like some kind of, you know, transaction and mm -hmm. I need to, uh, I need to prove something to you. So like, I need to prove to you, you know, like my age, for instance, but I don't want to reveal my date of birth. Um, uh, I'm going to like input my age into this circuit um, in out will come like a true or false uh, about whether or not I'm like, over 18 or like this is a simple example but i yep. think it's one that get, gets used a lot right. in zero knowledge um yep. you're you're gonna you're gonna get the um you're gonna get the proof uh that proof will be submitted on chain and but like 
at what point do you have the ability to verify the code that's in this circuit? Is that code like posted somewhere and there's like a hash or like what, what's the verification method? Because also it's being executed off chain. So how do you also know that the thing that gets sent to the alio chain is the thing that came from that zero knowledge circuit? It's a great question. And this is, this was really, so Zexy, the paper that Alio is based on was written by many of the Zcash founding team, uh, several members of the Zcash founding team and some members of its, of its current team. And this was, this was the idea they were trying to, that they were trying to solve, right? Where Zcash, this isn't a problem because Zcash is just, I send you money, you send me money. If there's implicitly, there's only one program. Now, how would you expand this to any program? Now, and the idea here is that we have a program registry that lives on chain and each transaction is, has an, a program ID associated with it. So, and you know, you need to have access to this program registry because in order to sit, in order to verify or prove uh, a transaction about a given program, you need to be able to synthesize what's called a proving key and a verification key. And to do that, you need to know what the program is. So that, so if we both have a shared understanding of which program we're operating on, we can both synthesize the cryptographic keys that we individually need you to prove me to verify. And that's how we maintain awareness about what we're talking. That's how we speak the same language functionally. And that this is, okay. this is different by the way, this is similar. And well, it's different. It's both different and similar to Ethereum. It's, it's similar to Ethereum in that it's the same thing, like it, smart contract bytecode is, is lives on chain, right? So nodes host the bytecode, right? In the same way, nodes and Alio host the Alio, the AVM bytecode or the Alio instructions for a given program. Now, the, the key thing here is there's a key value store that maps program ID uh, to program. And that that's a namespace that lives at, at kind of the base layer that you can also do a lot of other interesting things with. Okay, so the, the programs that people are running off-chain also need to register on-chain in order to, to be recognized by like different users of the Alio chain. And so like now, if you present to me, sort of like, here's some off-chain application that you're going to interact with, um, you, as a user, as a, as a counterparty to that, I can look at the Alio chain, uh, see that that program has been registered, and it's a way for me to verify but this is exactly the thing that I'm actually not only and it's not just you're seeing it you you need to synthesize the actual verification key to be convinced that whatever the proof you sent me is true so you, you actually okay. need access to that from a cryptographic standpoint okay so you as, as, so as a counterparty user do you also have access to the code where you can verify the code that's being run yeah yeah so the the way that when you synthesize is what you do basically you sort of like there's some process by which you take the code and then like you get to verify that, that code yeah. actually what's on chain. Yeah, exactly. So the, effectively the, the way it's just like, so in Ethereum, like, you know, we, we take advantage of the fact that there's like decompilers, right? Like Etherscan, for example, takes EVM bytecode, decompiles it and gives you, okay, this is the contract you're interacting with. Same idea in Alio. So there's like the program ID and the AVM bytecode, which can be decompiled and you can read in a human readable form what the program is. And then you can go the other way and compile that bytecode into R1CS, and then from that synthesize the proving key or verification key. So that's why that's why it's very specific that the what is stored on chain is this compressed or serialized form of the human readable instructions. Because then you can go up or go down. This is why it's called an intermediate representation. You can go up to the high level, 
human readable stuff, you can go down to the low level R1CS, which is what you need to actually compute okay. or verify. Cool. So I want to talk about the compiler and like this R1CS and like you know, this language you guys have built. Um, but I think it's helpful to maybe compare this to other platforms. And the things that come to mind here are um, StarkNet and all the work that the Starkware team have been doing over the years. Um, there's also, I think, Anoma comes to mind when you talk about, you know, like having uh, an OTC uh, desk, right, that, that is private and where you essentially have like, you know, uh, 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 this coincidence of wants, right, where uh, you have this coordination between someone who like has something to offer and someone who um, wants something. Um, Anoma comes to mind because I think this is like fundamentally like what they're trying to build at a very um, atomic level. And then, you know, maybe another, and, and, and we were talking about this earlier and we're like, unsure this is possible, but like, if you take something like Celestia, which essentially allows you to just send proofs to it, um, one could, you know, conceivably build like a Zexy uh, execution environment that runs independently off chain and it just sends proofs to Celestia. Um, what, how do you guys, you know, maybe from, from what you're familiar with these other platforms, like how would you compare to uh, some of these other initiatives? Yeah. Uh, so first off, let me, I guess, uh, just to maybe distinguish between like the ALO and OMA case potentially. So I think there's a lot of use cases for ALO besides just financial transactions. And one I want to really highlight or two real quickly, I'll highlight is identity. So one thing that the, by the way, is relevant to DeFi, but it's relevant to a ton of other applications in crypto is this concept of self-sovereign identity or on-chain identity. And it's very hard to do this in a blockchain like Ethereum where you're just, you know, I can go to your account, see everything about you the second you authenticate one time, right? And this is, I think identity on or off-chain in the digital world requires zero knowledge, right? You want to be able to prove, like, for example, I want to prove that I served in the military without revealing like what unit I was in or where I was deployed or something like that, right? It's like, that's, like this is some this is how you would want to build an identity system. It exactly replicates the way that identity works in the real world, right? I can show you my service record or like show you that I have a VA card without you being like, okay, you know, I, this is now I know everything about this person's service. So that identity is a huge use case. Gaming is another really cool use case. By the way, I love this is like one of my favorite use cases for zero knowledge because I think on-chain games and crypto, like crypto gaming is just this unbelievably lucrative, undiscovered country, right? There's this opportunity to have on-chain player-owned, DAO-owned games that can live forever and kind of morph and change as the con you know, as the players change. That's not possible in the real world, like the way games work today. And the games that take advantage of like private information, like Battleship, for example, is not possible on the in the transparent blockchain model, this is the typical smart contract model, because I can look at your account, see where all your ships are. It's not really fun, right? The private information aspect is what zero knowledge gives you. And that's actually one of the use cases that we're most excited about. Anyway, but back to your question, how does it compare? Um, so yeah, I think Anoma is focused mainly on this, this concept of bartering and like a barter economy and thinking about different assets and trading them. So that's uh, their, their focus uh, and knowing those folks pretty well, and maybe they would differ and hopefully you'll have them on the show at some point. They're a great team. Uh, and they're, they're doing a lot of cool work uh, in the Cosmos ecosystem, I know, especially. Uh, but I think their main focus is more on this kind of bartering and this economic transacting uh, model, whereas we think of ourselves as more general. Again, like I said, trading, you could do an OTC desk, but I think you know identity, 
things like that are also use cases that we really care about and focus on. Um, there's some other distinctions that are kind of more low level in terms of the cryptography, but we won't get into that. Um, Starkware is, so I think two main distinctions from Starkware uh, or Starknet. Uh, and I know it's Starknet and StarkX, I think. So, uh, so number one, it's different. Yeah, I also get those confused sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I think StarkX is like the Val Validium rollup and StarkNet is the ZK rollup. Um, anyway, uh, so two, I think two main ones. Uh, one, it's using a different type of zero knowledge proof, which is better in some ways, but also has some drawbacks. Uh, and namely, the, the one of the big drawbacks of a Stark versus a Snark, and Alio is built on Snarks is the proof size. So proof size, the proof size is not constant. The bigger the program that you run, the larger the proof size is. And kind of at by default, proofs are very large. So it's very hard to build a blockchain totally built around Starks because the size of the chain would massively blow up very quickly and you would have effectively a centralized chain. But that actually, you know, that's the other distinction between Alio and Starkware is Starkware is a is not a totally permissionless system. Like the Stark prover that they've developed, which they use for their rollups, is licensed, right? So you have to, you can't, no one can permissionlessly generate proofs on that system. There's a, there's basically a sequencer that they run and a prover that they run. And the model there is you delegate to this prover. The prover runs the computation for you, sends you back the result. They can't cheat you, but nonetheless, you yourself cannot permissionlessly deploy a program or permissionlessly transact in that system. That's by design. Whereas Alio, takes the opposite philosophy much closer to what Ethereum is, where it's like, you don't need to ask Alio permission to deploy or transact. You can prove. Now you can do the same thing where you're delegating a proof to a third party. And we think that's a very interesting ecosystem that we'll be developing in the future around zero knowledge where, you know, like these proofs are kind of intensive to compute. So you may want to offload that to a server in exactly the same way that the today's like client server architecture works for the web. Like my phone you know, my phone is not that powerful relative to a server in the cloud. So you can delegate some instructions, get, get a result back. The nice thing about this model though, with zero knowledge is that you can verify that this was done correctly for you. So yeah, I would say the permissionlessness is the main distinction between Aleo and Starkware specifically. And then, oh, Celestia, we we're supposed to talk about Celestia. Yeah. So, and again, I'm not as familiar with Celestia, uh, but my recollection of it um, back when it was called Lazy Ledger. I think it used to be called Lazy Ledger, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah it used to be called Lazy Ledger. Yeah, and, and the idea there is it's like kind of really optimizing for data availability and then like you can kind of do different logic on top. I think the one thing, and again, I'm not sure of this, but the question I would have is like, okay, at the layer one, what are nodes able to process? Like what are the nodes doing? Are they just hosting data or are they actually computing over data? And Alio, like nodes are hosting data about the programs, the state of records, which are basically what the results of transactions turn into. And, but they're also able to verify transactions are correct, right? So this requires the ability to, you know, compute a zero or verify a zero knowledge proof. And that requires support of certain cryptographic primitives. So I don't know if those support for those primitives exist in Celestia. And this is, by the way, a, a big problem with a lot of the ZK EVM stuff that's being built on Ethereum is because ZK requires typically if efficient ZK constructions require special cryptography that when Ethereum was designed, nobody like thought they needed. So now it's it's often a problem for compatibility where you have like, it, it's very costly to verify a zero knowledge proof on chain in Ethereum. This is why, for example, on the rollup side or the ZKVM side, scroll ZKVM produces a block once every 24 hours. It's just very expensive to do this. And so this is one of the other reasons why we built our own L1 is we wanted to bake in all of the primitives that 
you know, that we knew we would need to build an efficient smart contract system in ZK right at the base layer. Got it. Um, no, that, that makes sense. And I think like having a general purpose permissionless, like zero knowledge, smart contracting platform, you know, it's like, a, it's a great utility to have in the space. And, you know, the types of things that people are going to build on Alio are going to be certainly different than the types of constructions that you'll have on Anoma or like on, on Stark net or Stark X uh, system. And um, I'm, I'm still, you know, I tweeted, I tweeted out a while ago, basically like asking my question, uh, whether or not we could do what, what I think we could do on Celestia. I haven't got an answer yet, but uh, we'll, hopefully by, by the time this yeah. comes out, we'll have the answer. Um, I mean, all these things yeah, are evolving like, too, right? So it's like, it's always hard. Yeah. You're like, what can you do? Well, it's like, what can you do today? Or what can you do tomorrow? Anyway. Yeah. Let's talk about some of the stuff you built here. And one of the things that I really like, so you, you have this language and the way that I would describe this is like Leo is a language that um, compiles down to a lower level, uh, basically to like a ZK circuit. And so it allows you to write a ZK circuit effectively in something that's like akin to TypeScript. And what, what I really like, is, so you, you get your own IDE and everything. So I think there's like one drawback to this and, and it's similar to, I, I believe with, um, with uh, StarkNet where you have to learn a new language. Um, now with this, you know, perhaps having some background in like JavaScript or Rust, uh, you could probably pick this up quite quickly, but like you do have to learn a new language. What, one of the things that I like about it is that it's, it's like an easy way to build uh, a ZK circuit, whereas like that's probably pretty complex to do. Um, I'm sure there's libraries to do that, but you've got like an, an in, in browser IDE, uh, which I'd, I'd like to show here, um, which is pretty cool because like you, you, you can basically pick this up and like start writing ZK circuits um, right in your browser. And I, I wonder if, if, you know, if we could go through an example here, just to get an idea of what we're actually doing. Um, so, you know, there, there's a couple of examples here. Maybe we can just take like a basic one, uh, like this one, where effectively we're like multiplying uh, two numbers and getting the result. Um, can, can you walk us through this this example? Yeah, sure. So this is again a very simple kind of hello world example. In this in this case, you're actually adding two numbers. You're multiplying the result of those two of that sum to itself. So you're basically, yeah, you're you're squaring the result of a sum. Um, right. and that's, it's a simple program, as you pointed out, it's types, it's a bit tight. I, I, I like to think of it as like rust plus TypeScript. I think if you, if you see it's type, this is a type language. So you, you're, you're defining what are the types here that you're using. And let me just take a quick digression, uh, about types in the ZK. Cause this is something that if you look at, there's, there's a number of different zero knowledge kind of languages out there. Um, but this is something that does make Leo special is that we have support for, um, for kind of traditional types. So one thing to note about zero knowledge proofs is that these take like proofs are generated and verified over a different domain, mathematically speaking, than like what computers typically operate on. Like your computer, our computer right now is built to do bit, you know, it's built over the, the binary number domain, right? So everything's a, some bits, right? And that's how numbers are representative and, you, and the computer's basically architected to do um, binary arithmetic and Boolean logic, right? Whereas proofs are cryptographic operations defined over elliptic curves that are just, it's just different, right? It's a different domain. And so it's very, very hard to translate between these things. That's why even though zero knowledge cryptography has been around for a long time, 
it's only just recently become efficient to generate, to, to do proofs in production or to do zero knowledge in production. And then it's only just now becoming possible to write arbitrary programs that where you can represent things like U32s inside of a circuit efficiently, right? So this is like, it seems simple because every programming language does this. But again, I want to just, I just want to point out that these at a low level, the difference between a program that you write in Rust and a program that you write in ZK, very, very different. And it's not, it's a non-trivial problem to solve. Okay. So anyway, so you have your inputs in main. So you have two U32s that, and the output is a U32. Um, and in this case, I don't actually think there's anything that's, uh, that's published here. So you have, we have a different um, command that lets you, it, it's kind of the equivalent of console.log in JavaScript for anyone who's familiar with JavaScript, which outputs some public value. So you could do that here. Um, I will make you, I will make you write it, but uh, just note that whatever result gets computed about inside the proof can be made public. And, um, and yeah, so then, and then down here below you have your program inputs. So this is what you as the independent, as the, as the user, if you're or the person generating the proof, you, you, uh, you have those numbers there and then that registers, we won't get it. We don't have time to get into it here, but just, yeah, that's not really super important to remember, but the key thing here is now you can run the proof. You want to just hit run. So you can basically say, okay, take, take my inputs Okay, now what's happening here? So if, if you actually want to scroll up in that um, in that bottom bottom line there, um, okay, cool. So yeah, yep. Okay, so the build. Okay, so what's happening here is, and this is all happening on the back end. Uh, so you you've got this logic that's written in Leo. Now this is getting compiled down to the intermediate the intermediate representation, which is the Aleo instructions. Those yeah. Aleo instructions are then getting turned into R1CS, which is like the low level representation of a zero knowledge proof. The setup down here is, and this is what you're seeing here is going to be different than what actually happens on chain. Cause this is, this is a little bit of a demo. And this, as we update this, as we launch our chain, like this will be more closer to like what the actual experience is like, but here, the setup, this is, you're actually generating a, your own, you're doing your own setup ceremony here just for yourself. And the setup ceremony for a ZK snark is critical to be able to generate proving and verifying keys. So this is where you're generating a setup in practice. Alio has done a trusted setup already. And this is, by the way, is the biggest setup ceremony ever. We have thousands of contributors. Um, so it's, you know, I think actually you should probably call it a trustless setup ceremony because again, we've got a ton of people. So in practice, you would not do this step. You would download the parameters from the blockchain and then we use those parameters. So rather than generating your own setup, you would take the parameters that have already been done, set up. Okay, so then right. So in, in practice, when you're running, when you're running this, you're relying on the yep. paleo. And if you go down, actually scroll down. Yeah, so you see the the biggest part is the setup, right? And so in practice, that actually wouldn't that wouldn't take very long. It would take no time because yeah. you would already have that information. Okay, so then now you have the proving. So this is where you're taking the parameters that you generated in the setup, the R1CS. You're generating the proving key, and you're outputting a zero knowledge proof. And then the verification is like, in, again, in practice, you would not do this, but the nodes on the cha on chain would do this. They would verify the proof and make sure it was valid, include the transaction on chain and update state. And you actually see here the registers since you clicked on main dat out on top, that that's the result of your program, right? So, okay. so you can see- So this is, the, this is the result. And so basically when I look at this, I see this is the result and I see that the proof is valid. And so I, I can trust that this is the result that- um, Exactly. That, that I was expecting. From the program. Exactly. Exactly. Now it's a little, again, this is like, cause it's a toy example. You have to kind of like, you're like, okay, what <laughs> you have to think back on like, okay, what, what was, what's the question that I'm asking that this would matter? Like actually that like programming in ZK is kind of interesting because the paradigm is kind of different. Um, have you ever read Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? 
I don't know if you've read that book, but there's no, a, I haven't. It's a famous science fiction book. I think I watched the movie like, at some point, but yeah. there's a little anecdote where it's like, you know, there's like the supercomputer that like, what's the answer to like the, all the world's problems or something. And it just get, it like one point spits out an answer 39. And then everyone's like, or I get sound of these 39, I think it's 43, 42. Yeah. 42. Thank you. Yeah. Anyway, but anyway, then everyone's like, well, what was the question? <laughs> and that's kind of like how ZK is. You're like, here's the proof and the number. And you're like, okay, well, what's the question? So it's it's kind of an interesting way as a developer, you have to think about it. So you're like, okay, what do I want the user to be able to show to prove a question true? Anyway, um, but this is Leo. And uh, and again, in addition to writing programs in this high-level form, you can also write in the ALEO instructions directly in the same way that some people write Yule uh, instead of uh, EVM, or they write EVM bytecode, like kind of specifically to make things more optimal. And uh, yeah. And I can share some more resources about that if you're curious or your listeners are curious. No, I mean, this is really cool. I think like what this, you know, for, for someone like me, who's like a, you know, low level programmer, like with some programming expertise or like experience. Um, I mean, look at this and say, okay, like this is how, uh, you know, basically understanding how this works at a, at a basic level. And then like, you know, if I want to dive deeper, I've got like the developer resources, et cetera, but like it, you know, with with some basic programming knowledge, you, you can write a zero knowledge uh, proof, and you, you can write a zero knowledge application without having to understand you know, some of the more lower level um, languages and like writing circuits, etc. Um, so I, I think that's really cool. Um, yeah, maybe also I, I'd like to talk about this package manager. So it, it, this kind of feels like an npm like. Um, uh, service. Can, can you talk about what this is for and you know, what types of things we'll, we'll find here? Yeah. So this is something that I, I really think is cool about Alio that not a lot of other smart contract languages uh, or, or, or uh, blockchains have, which almost every other programming language has, right? So you mentioned NPM a second ago. When, and what is NPM for those who maybe are not as technical? NPM stands for node package manager. And it's, if it's a package manager in the sense that someone else like Seb can, you can write some code. Let's say what's, you know, how do I efficiently square two numbers? And then you can publish that as a package on NPM. And then I can use that, import it in a single line. And, and you see up here, yeah, Leo add. So this is like the syntax for adding a package um, or for installing a package. And you have the import, import, uh, line it down there in the usage and it shows you how to like import the thing. Um, anyway, the point is, is like you, someone else can write some logic. You can use that logic without to copy and paste it. And it seems like, again, for people who've been programming for a while, that's like the obvious thing that, <laughs> that should exist in every basically language ecosystem, you know, Rust, C, JavaScript, every language that I know of has a package manager typically associated with the ecosystem. But in blockchains, we actually don't have this like Ethereum, for example, um, you know, what's the uh, safe math is um, you have, you have a, a, a library that everyone uses, which is basically ensures that your, your, you know, your integer arithmetic doesn't underflow or overflow, but that the way that's imported is control C control V <laughs> like, and yeah. that's, 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 so this is like a nice ergonomic feature that we think is both better for developer experience, but also for security, because believe it or not, people have screwed up the control C control V exercise in Ethereum and cost themselves millions of dollars. Um, yeah. So. I mean, effectively, like Ethereum has a ton of packages that everybody uses, like open Zeppelin contracts or, exactly. you know, um, I don't know, Gnosis Safe or like, yes. um, you know, Safe Math or whatever. 
but but there is not like a canonical way to streamline adding those into your contract or at least i mean i i don't write solidity and i'm not writing smart contracts like that but um yeah i mean it, it's not it's not obvious that there's like a, a streamlined way to do that um this this is yeah this is super cool I'll, yeah like and this, this is and this uh, also makes you want to go write some code <laughs> yeah and it also it's opened up the door for like because one of the things that's cool about this is typically you have these packages and these ecosystems which are widely used but there's really no way for the developer that wrote them to capture value but you can imagine a world in which you as the developer can basically add into this package like some some mechanism to tip yourself right some amount and then you this is a way to sustainably fund like these these projects which are or, or like these libraries which are really really important to a, to an ecosystem which doesn't exist right if you think of uh i don't know i'm, I'm trying to think of like an example like serta in uh in rust right it's like this package everyone uses to serialize and deserialize things in different formats like the developers who wrote that get nothing effectively from every time that's used but in the world of alio because it's on chain there's this financial component you could imagine a world where microtransactions are are paying developers some fee stream for writing these cool libraries that's cool um yeah I, I, there's there's another topic I, I wanted to touch on here which is um you know the the, the current regulatory environment uh so yeah I, I spent some time in the regulatory world i i i, I was commons director at basically the french crypto lobbying organization that did a lot of work on on mika and and the eu um regulatory uh Package, uh, but you know, recently in, in, in the last couple of weeks, we, we had this news that the uh, Trinidad Cash uh, contracts were effectively uh, sanctioned, and there's been some arrests. And I think the full, you know, the full consequence of that decision is not. I think we haven't really seen the full consequences of what this means for the industry. Uh, but there's, I think it's definitely like a feeling that. Um, at least the the U.S. Uh, apparatus, regulatory like or oversight apparatus, um, is is at war with like, privacy in crypto. Um, you know, for for the reasons that they put forth, right, which is that like this stuff is being used for money laundering, etc. Um, I, I can't help but you know think about. Mark Miller's story, like, you know, Mark Miller, who, you know, is like a longtime cryptographer and um, like cypherpunk and who like now works with Agoric, you know, he came on Epicenter and he told this story of like how they used to print the RSA algorithms on their, on their t-shirt. Yeah. It's like and, a munition, um, that's what it was called, a munition, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. And so I, I can't help but like sort of think of that story when I see guys like singing the tornado cash code uh, on Twitter. Uh, but yeah, so... Like, what are the steps that you guys are taking to keep your team out of jail? <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, what, how do you, how, you know, how do you wake up in the morning and, and think like, after after this news uh, falls upon the ecosystem and think like we want to keep doing what we're doing? Yeah, so um, it's a fascinating case, right? Um, and look, I told you already that I'm someone who believes in not just this technology, but the principles that underpin it, because I've, I've been places in the world where those are not withheld or protected. Um, but I think that's like, let me start with by saying a couple things. Um, 
first of all, I think there's facts of the case that not everyone is aware of. So I think, you know, it's easy to jump to the conclusion that the U.S. government is at war with privacy. But I don't know, if, again, we, there, there may be facts of this case that are relevant that we don't know. I think one thing that's, that is more or less known is that, you know, it is true that North Korean hackers, oh, well, it's, it's alleged that North Korean hackers use that to launder money from the Ronin bridge hack, right? So I think there's a, there's a legitimate question of, I think you have to separate two questions. So one is like, what is Tornado Cash or similar projects good for? And then two is what were they actually used for? And I think that's, I think most likely the reason why that project was targeted because there's a lot of privacy projects. I mean, look, there's, uh, we mentioned it like Zcash or Monero, right? These, these projects facilitate private payments as well. They were not targeted. Tornado Cash was targeted. So there may be facts of this case that we're not aware of. And so I don't want to necessarily say yet that the U.S. government is at war with privacy, because I think there actually is very good reason why in a payment system of the future, you would want privacy. Like we've, you know, just think about how banking works today. Like I don't, I mean, sure, the bank can access my account information if subpoenaed by the government. And by the way, you can do that same thing in the zero knowledge crypto cryptography domain. Like every every user of every transaction has a view key, which they can use. Okay, hey, if the law enforcement shows up and asks me, they can they have the ability to decrypt and show what there is. So that's that's possible to replicate in the ZK domain. But I think if you have an economy where everything is transparent, like that doesn't work, right? Like if you and me are suppliers, or if, I'm sorry, if I'm a vendor of you and you, you know you look at you, it's like you're Walmart, right? And you're you know you're buying plastic toys from me, right? And you're maybe bidding with a couple other vendors. Like, how are we going to have? How are you going to protect business interests and secrets in a world in which everything is transparent on chain? You need some level of privacy in the real financial world. That's why if I send you a bank wire, I don't just get to see your account, right? Like it's actually the 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 level of transparency in blockchains is insanely high even relative to like the way the internet works, like where it's like, you're kind of emitting data all the time. Um, yeah. It's like privacy by obscurity. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. Barely. Right. Because even, I mean, as, as we've seen, I mean, look, TRM labs was of course, like one of the, you, you know, the businesses that the government worked with to identify and, and help prosecute this or well, help build the case against tornado cash. Right. And the, the reality is like, it's trivial if you know what you're doing to, to de-anonymize everybody on a blockchain, like Ethereum. Right. Uh, and this is how, I mean, even six years ago or five, six, seven, I, whatever, Ross Ulbricht, who was running Silk Road, I mean, he got caught this way. Um, and look, I think there's reasons from like a practical, for there's many practical reasons why privacy is important. There's many national security reasons why privacy is important. And so I think the government has a more nuanced view on this than people than people give it credit for. But also, I think it's important from a from a platform. So taking the perspective of someone building a platform for private applications, I think the onus is on us and on other members of the space that are building this to, to demonstrate and prove that there are use cases for this. And these are real use cases that I think everyone would agree upon, but, but to prove that these in practice, there are use cases that are not criminal in nature. Right. I think, again, my impression is that the majority of use of tornado cash, at least from the perspective of the U S government was illicit. Right. And so then it's a question of balancing, OK, do we let this keep going or do we preserve the principle that we maybe agree with? But, you know, just the, the, the disparity between these two things is too high. So I think it's really important for us to make sure we build things such that people can choose, can build things that are compliant 
And I think, cause that's, that's something that tornado cash really didn't do. Right. There's no way to prove compliance in that world. Right. And whereas in our case, like, let's just take an example of an alio program. You can imagine a, like a ERC 20 equivalent, let's call it an ARC 20. Um, and you can imagine a stable coin like uh, USTC in, in, in the alio model. And you can actually encode like whatever logic you want about compliance. Let's just take the simple one that USDC does where there's a blacklist and OFAC, you know, it says OFAC maintains the blacklist says all these addresses are associated with bad people or things you cannot transact with them. Right. And you can, you can encode that into the ALIO program. And so when I generate the proof that says I'm sending said money, I'm also attesting to the fact that his address is not on this list. Right. Yeah. And that, and therefore, and that that's, that's critical for a couple of reasons. One like, yes, it, it lets you prove that you're compliant and therefore you can have a system that, that works in that in a regulatory regime. But two, it saves an enormous amount of resources for regulators. Like, yeah, for sure. Go to a big, this is right. also true for, you know, regular vanilla smart contracts as well. Like this is, true. I think, an argument exactly. that you can make about like an Ethereum smart contract, too. But um, Ethereum strangely, smart contracts those... are not private. Right. And so you have to give no, right. everything up of transparency. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead. But, but I, I think this is an argument that a lot of us in the space have been making for some time, like, you know, my, in my previous company, we were making this argument, you know, back in 2015 or whatever, um, seeing how the regulatory environment, and I'm, I'm more, I'm more privy to like how the regulatory environment is, is evolving in Europe, less so, I guess, in the, in the US, but in Europe, there is definitely, I think, a sentiment that from the crypto community, and you know, with some with some level of um, uh, of you know, like certainty, that the that the European regulatory apparatus really is going like doesn't doesn't want to have um, any sort of privacy in crypto, and you know, the prime example of that is that you know, I haven't read the last version of Mika, but in previous versions and drafts that were made public, um, things like Monero and Zcash were uh, to be outside of the regulatory scope, uh, I believe. And um, and as far as um, as far as things like you know CBDCs and other sorts of like state currencies are concerned, uh, I believe there's also a, a, you know an, an, an intention there to have those things be. Um, you know, auditable by the state where the state would have some sort of, uh, uh, or like, you know, the state would have some sort of a way to, um, uh, to, to, to have like a, a like a, a, a view key effectively, uh, which is novel, right. Compared to, um, compared to say cash or something like that. So, yeah. So, with, I, so I, with, I, yeah. So with Alio, you can build both, right. You can build a CBDC that has a, like that gives the state superpowers to view everything that's possible. You can build a private payment not network desirable. somewhat like a, a close thing. Yeah, maybe not desirable. You can build a private payment network yeah. that's decentralized like Zcash. You can do both, right? And I think that's the key thing. And that's what, I mean, it's just like the internet, right? Like the internet, like H HTTP and like, you know, TCP IP, these technologies are just, co it's just ideas basically that then gets implemented in the real world. It can be used for good or bad things, right? And, and that's why I view like what we need to be focused on is building tools that people can use. And, and we need to show that these tools have legitimate use cases because they do. Because again, I really believe that even from the perspective of the state, they do not want this to be, I think they maybe think they want, but I think that's 
in some cases they think they want, but I think that's because they're not as educated on what this technology could potentially do. And as they mm-hmm. become more educated about what this, this technology can do, they are going to want something like, frankly, the model of Alio or just zero knowledge in general, where it's like, I can prove I'm compliant. I can prove A, B, and C, but I don't have to, like, you don't need to know what it is unless there's like a, some subpoena thing. And I was like, okay, here's a view key. That's exactly how the world works already today. To go to a model of like USDC is insane. Like it's invasive even from like the Chinese government's policies. Like it's crazy. Like, so I think that's, that's the key thing. And I think governments are going to realize this. I think it's just, it, it, they, it's a matter of education. Uh, at least that's my view. Hmm. What's the, what's the link to say the interchain here? Like what's the, are, are, are we going to, are we going to be able to, um, are, do we, can we expect Alio to be you know, IBC compatible and um, like how, how do you guys fit in the, in the broader eco- ecosystem of the interchain? Yeah. So let me first say, let me first start by saying that like, just for everyone's PSA, Alio is not live. So Alio, we've just launched our third test net. And right, we're, yeah. we're, we're aiming for kind of end of this year, early next year for a mainnet launch. Um, so this, all this is theoretical. And, and I'm saying this because the, you know, like any blockchain that's in development, things are getting tweaked and like whether something is going to be compatible or not, I can't really comment on because that engineering roadmap is evolving a little bit. That said, Alio does very much consider itself to be, or we consider Alio to be, uh, or we hope that it is kind of the settlement layer that can connect to a bunch of different ecosystems. And I think in particular, we've had conversations with the folks at Axelar to be able to access and be part of like the Cosmos ecosystem. And I think one of the cool things about having a blockchain that's built around zero knowledge proofs is that it's very easy to have light clients or to have bridges that are more secure than your typical bridge, which is just a multi-sig. Here, you know, the light client effectively that's implemented on the other end of a blockchain can ingest state and verify the verify a proof about the current state of the ledger. Whereas in, in the traditional blockchain world, you just kind of have to take the Oracle's word for it um, that the current state that you got is valid. Um, so I think this Alio is a tool for more secure bridging. And I, we hope that even beyond Alio, people take this technique of just this zero knowledge cryptography and apply it towards both light clients and bridges. Um, Cause I think there's a lot of security benefits. In fact, we've already been in conversations in, uh, besides like with Axelar, but also we, we, we've, uh, talked a bit with Solana about potentially implementing a newer version of their wormhole bridge. And we've done some preliminary work on that. And in general, we see Alio as a, like I said, a settlement layer that fits in between other members of the ecosystem. Okay, cool. So, so potentially there could be like an IBC light client implementation that would allow you to move. Uh, exactly. So the way you would assets, do it is, I, yeah. so probably, I guess, like, you know, again, I, I think the way that I'm current to, currently contemplating it is like the Axelar, right? So it's like, because Axelar kind of does this in the IBC ecosystem. So we implemented a, yeah. a light client, which I guess is an IBC light client on Alio. And then Axelar implements the Alio light client. Funds can go to and from, and then from Axelar, things can go anywhere. In the, and then you can use it, you can use Alio as like a tornado cache. You could use it as a tornado cache. Yeah. I mean, or, or for many other things that required privacy. Right. So yeah, like, yeah. You know, it can be, it can be many things to many people. And uh, again, it's, yeah. it just comes down to the fact that it's a tool that you can use, but I think what private settlement is going to be critical if, and this is maybe like a, a personal b- feeling. Like if we want this, I mean, you said you've been in the space a long time. I have to like, I'm sure many of your listeners have, like if we, like we're still at the cusp of, actual adoption. I think people maybe sometimes mistake 
how far we are in crypto, right? Like yeah. in terms of real world adoption, we've, it's the beginning of the beginning of the beginning. Oh and, yeah, absolutely. Like scratching the surface. Exactly. Despite all the money that's coming to the space and in order to gain real world adoption, we need to provide real utility. And again, I think the utility comes from the fact that this is a better method of financial settlement, but in financial settlement, I think people have expectations about what is private, what is not private. And so I think to me, this is a real, it's a precondition uh, to have the option to do things privately, financially, uh, to have this actually grow and, and support an ecosystem of actual or a real economy rather. Mm. Um, so that's my view. Cool. So what's the roadmap? Like you, uh, so you, yeah, you just mentioned that, that you're on your, I think um, you guys are on the third test net. Um, what's the roadmap to mainnet and how can people get involved? Yeah. So it's a perfect time to get involved. So this is just launching our third test net and this is, you know, I, I guess I'll just, People probably, people probably already know this, but building blockchains is complicated, especially zero knowledge ones. So it's taken a couple iterations to get it to where we're happy with it. Um, but this one is planned to be the final testnet before our mainnet launch, which again is contemplated at the end of this year, early next. Have you, have um, you had incentivized testnet already? We had one incentivized testnet. We learned a lot of things during that incentivized testnet that motivated the design of this testnet, which is, by the way, anyone building a blockchain, I highly recommend doing incentivized testnets because you will learn things that you did not expect. Anytime, anytime you dangle economic incentives, people do things. And actually, in fact, our last testnet uh, was proof of work. We, we, we were using a proof of work-based consensus model. And frankly, we faced a lot of challenges with that. Uh, I can get into those really? if you're curious, but we actually, because of that experience, we transitioned to a proof of stake model. Uh, now, there is a work component, and this is one way that people can get involved, because one of my criticisms of proof of stake is that you kind of encode the ownership, like the cap table, quote unquote, at the beginning, because theoretically, everyone's just incentivized to stake what they have, and then they just kind of continue to accumulate and they keep their relative position the same. And I think one of the cool things about the way Ethereum is doing its proof of stake is they started proof of work, and it's kind of got very wide distribution, and now they're going proof of stake. And so this, this to me implies there'll be a more decentralized system. And so what we have in our system is we have this proof of, it's proof of state consensus. So blocks are produced by validators and transactions are verified by validators. But the Coinbase transaction, the way new money comes into the system is split between validators that construct blocks and provers. And this concept of provers we have is like, you can do, it's kind of like a proof of work puzzle, but you can compete with other provers and potentially earn a share of the Coinbase transaction. And we wanted to keep this for two reasons. One, it ensures that the distribution of the token is going outside of the initial owners and it's continuing to like distribute uh, these tokens in a way that hopefully will make the, the validator set more, more kind of equal. But also we want, like I mentioned a couple of times, the zero knowledge cryptography is a pretty new thing. It's only become practical recently. One of the things that's going to make it mainstream is um, specialized hardware. And there needs to be an incentive for hardware developers to put this hardware inside of phones, laptops, servers, you name it. And this is like one of the things, actually, if you look at the development of the internet, it was a really key milestone. So I, I'm old enough, I don't know, I don't know how old you are, Seb, but maybe you're old enough to remember a time when HTTPS was not the universal standard everywhere. Like I remember when you only yeah, used that. Yeah, it was like that. 10 years ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It was like, but, and there was like a noticeable difference when you were paying with a credit card, card page, like it took much noticeably longer. And that's because the encryption that you're using as part of that, like TLS, which is what HTTPS basically implements, like that, that in real world time took seconds. Now, since 
the, the reason that it does, you don't see that anymore is because Intel baked in a set of instructions specifically for that encryption inside of all its hardware, which took the real world time down to nothing. With ZK, that potential is also there. So that's why we have this incentive for provers to earn money from the protocol so that then they can invest in better, faster hardware to do proofs more efficiently, more cheaply, more quickly. And that benefits everyone. So um, so anyway, so okay, so you can buy, so you can participate as a prover, potentially earn credits. Again, this is testnet three is incentivized. So these these credits, you know, you can earn will we'll transfer to mainnet. You can be a validator um, and you can help produce and construct blocks. And again, you'll be earning part of the Coinbase reward there. You can be a developer, right? So you can write Leo programs, deploy them on chain and interact with programs. And that's part of the incentivization scheme as well. And lastly, you can be a hacker, which is like, you can find, find bugs in our consensus protocol and hopefully tell us about them and we will pay you break for that. <laughs> uh, and yeah, hopefully break things. And, you know, we have a, a relatively large amount of credit set aside for people that break things. And I guess just quickly, it's just for people's nomenclature. So we, we call the native unit of value in our network, Alio credits, um, kind of modeled on AWS credits. Cause that's, that's kind of how we see it. Like what your what an Alio credit represents fundamentally is a unit of a ZK compute. Very cool. Uh, well, I, I think that that about covers, uh, a lot of it. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think like definitely, we at Interop would uh, would be keen on yeah maybe running for validators getting involved somehow. Um, cool. And yeah, when's, when's the mainnet launch? Yeah, so testnet three just started, and we're kind of rolling out features over the next couple of months. And mainnet, we're aiming for end of the year, early next year for our launch. Cool. Yeah. Well, uh, the people should definitely check out the website alio uh, dot org. Yep. Yeah. And then alio. Leo leo-lang.org for the IDE that said you you uh, uh, you demoed a minute ago. Yeah, cool. All right. Thanks, uh, thanks a lot, Alex. Hey, this was a lot of fun. Thanks a lot for having me on the show. No worries.